This is Beekeeper Confidential. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. I have been a really busy bee lately, but one of the most interesting things that I've participated in since our last episode was a workshop for the Oregon Bee Atlas. The Oregon Bee Atlas is a part of the Oregon Bee Project that aims to take an inventory of Oregon's bees. It's such an enormous undertaking that they're training regional teams of volunteers to collect, preserve, identify, and label bees. Did you know that Oregon has some 500 species of bees? But what if there are more? How do we track their populations without a clear baseline of who they are and where they live and what they eat? That's why this is such an awesome mission to go on. I'll be sharing my experiences with this as the season progresses. Speaking of bee populations, today's guest is a conservation biologist and author of the widely popular book, Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of Bees. Please welcome Tor Hansen. Tor, this is Mandy. Hi. I saw you recently when you came to Portland. You were at OMSI and you did the pub science talk. And I loved it because you were so enthusiastic. And I didn't realize, well, I mean, reading your book, you're a wonderful writer. But you also have a sort of theatrical stage presence. Well, I think it's really important to take advantage of those opportunities to communicate directly with an audience. So I, I, I do try to put an effort into my public speaking in the, in the same way that I you know, put so much effort into writing. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and, and uh, it's something I, I do try to take seriously. Did you participate in theater when you were back in middle school or high school? <laughs> no. I think I played, uh, I had a, a very small role in my grade school production of, uh, oh, What's the the old Dickens thing with Tiny Tim and all of that? Oh, uh, a, Christmas a Christmas Carol. <laughs> a Christmas Tale. Yeah, I was the boy who went to a fetch the Christmas goose at the end, and that was about it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Are you a biologist first or an author first? Oh, what a great question. Yeah, so my training is, is primarily in biology and botany, and I uh, came at the writing uh, from that angle, though I've always had an interest in writing. So as an undergraduate, I studied uh, writing and uh, ecology, and then went on in my education and career in the sciences, and then returned to writing when I became really passionate about this idea of the storytelling of science, mm-hmm. and having the experience of seeing so many fascinating and important scientific 
stories and discoveries that really never seem to make it beyond the relatively limited audience of of peer review and, and scientific journals, which oh. are, of course, essential parts of science, but there are many times when we really need to take our stories uh, farther. And so I've dedicated now the, the latter part of my career to trying to do more of that. So it seems like Buzz is connecting with people who have no prior experience with bees at all. Was that a surprise to you? Well, I, 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 I don't know if it was a surprise, but I'm certainly happy if that is the case and that I think, you know, we have a very ancient connection to bees mm-hmm. and I, if there are ways to rekindle that through stories and get people to pause in their daily life and look for bees, which are really in, in so many of our habitats, urban areas, suburban areas, out in rural places, wildlands, we can find bees and find these fascinating creatures with their marvelous stories that are playing out right in front of our eyes. Mm-hmm. We only need to remind ourselves that they're there and slow down and watch. Yes, I think that's so vital. You know, I, I do a lot of presentations for school-age kids, And there's so many of them who are just terrified of bees. And I'm hoping that there's going to be a shift in that perception of bees, that they're not stinging demons, that they're actually, like you said, marvelous creatures that that are really to be admired. Absolutely. And I think one can overcome that um, quite quickly through the sorts of outreach that you're doing when you go in and speak with kids or groups of adults for that matter and mm-hmm. get them to observe and overcome that that sense of fear, which is something that people have been doing for, for literally, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Mm-hmm. Again and again, sort of overcoming a natural hesitation around these insects uh, to delve into their natural history because it's not only interesting but has so many benefits to us in terms of the production of honey and wax from honeybees and now of course that we understand uh, pollination and all the great things that uh, wild native bees provide you know it's uh, a fascinating story and one that that I think allows people to get an insight into the life history of insects in a way that we're probably not as likely to do with, you know, some of the cockroaches and flies and earwigs and things. <laughs> right. The cockroaches aren't as romantic as bees. <laughs> right. No, you know, well, at least yeah, nobody's you know, written uh, a book to convince me otherwise. <laughs> 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 so for somebody who has had no prior experience with bees and they, they become enchanted by your latest book, Buzz, and they want to get involved, what do you think is the most impactful and meaningful way for somebody to help pollinators? Habitat. I think that is is one of the most important things that people have the ability to do is to provide habitat for bees. And we can do so and see a very rapid response really anywhere that you're living. I mean, if you're in an apartment, a window box can provide nectar and pollen for bees. If you are in a a suburban neighborhood, your yard or whatever little verge of of land that you might now have now in front of your house that might just be a bit of grass between you and the pavement Mm -hmm. can uh, be transformed into bee habitat in a way that will actually benefit bees, not only by providing nectar and pollen from you know, a whole range of flowers that are, are easy to, 
to get going in these situations, but also potentially nesting habitat as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's one of these rare situations where we might hear about stories of species that are suffering uh, in the news. Uh, we hear these stories about you know, bee declines and what have you. Uh, well, we can really actually do something that, that impacts bees and makes a difference in our local environment very rapidly, which is very different from hearing, you know, stories about many other species, whether it be whales or spotted owls or other things in our neck of the woods that might be suffering. Hard to do something in your backyard, whereas mm. for bees, you can do something substantial uh, by providing habitat and then watching the results, which can happen really in a single season because the bees that are around are constantly on the lookout and they'll find it if you if you build it so to speak uh, yes <laughs> yes that's so true and i think that you know even like you said a window box even a small contribution can have an impact on on the local bees yeah, absolutely. I mean, we sort of, off the top of your head, you think, well, that's absurd. How could it matter? But it really does. And mm -hmm. one of the ways we know that is by some of the surveys that have been done now uh, around a number of, of urban areas in, in North America, also over in Europe. One of my favorites was from uh, around the city of London, where they did these bee surveys from rural areas in through the suburbs and then into the heart of London and actually found uh, higher diversity and abundance of bees in some of the suburban and, and urban areas because of the great variety of you know, backyard habitats, window boxes, uh, parks, city parks, you know, places where there was a huge variety of nectar mm -hmm. and pollen available, more so even than the rural areas, which were agricultural practices with, with little diversity. So yes. we, we are, we'll be surprised, I think, at what we can do for bees, even in our own uh, neck of the woods. Yeah, I, I took a training over the weekend, um, the Oregon Bee Atlas. They are conducting an inventory of Oregon's bees and so they're depending on citizen scientists to go out and collect specimens and they said you will find a greater diversity of bees in urban areas than you will going out to rural sites. A surprising trend but it makes sense if you think about changes in farming practices particularly over the last 50-75 years uh, or even a century in some areas where we've really transitioned away from many crops grown on smaller acreages in the landscape to very efficient farming now that relies on production of single crops over large areas. Mm -hmm. And when we make that transition, what happens is people tend to remove things like hedgerows uh, and, and you have fewer sort of smaller farms where you might have many crops or where farmers would have backyards with their gardens and orchards and things. Uh, and the, the landscape actually becomes less and less diverse in flower resources for bees. So mm -hmm. you might have one crop grown over thousands of acres that provides wonderful nectar and pollen for a few weeks out of the year. And then for the rest of the year, it's virtually a desert for bees and other pollinators. So in this rush towards efficiency and great productivity in farmland, we have given up some of the habitat diversity that was benefiting bees and other pollinators. So there is, you know, the good news is there are, there's realization of this and there are examples now where uh, farmers uh, and others are working in rural areas are, are 
reintroducing some habitat diversity and seeing the results of that. Yes, I believe Project Apis M is also heading an effort to connect large-scale farms with seeds to, to start hedgerows to bring in more pollinators. So it's exciting that, that people are starting to realize that that's what we need to do. <laughs> Bees really are suffering, and we yeah. can see declines in a number of native species as well as the increasing the troubles people have with uh, maintaining our, our essential uh, honeybee pollinators as well mm-hmm. and populations. So that's the bad news. The good news is we know enough to take action and, and help bees, even though we don't understand all of the interacting factors that are impacting them. Mm-hmm. We know enough to take action, and by reducing pesticide use and increasing habitat, uh, uh, we can have a positive impact and we can measure that impact. So there's some new science coming out of Washington about the connection between honeybee health and mushrooms. What do you think about that? And do you think that mushrooms can also have a positive impact on the health of our native bee population? Oh, it's wonderful stuff. And I don't know enough to comment uh, knowledgeably on it because mm-hmm. it's brand new and I haven't uh, sunk into the science yet. But what I can tell you is this, is that the fungal kingdom is sort of the undiscovered country and we're just beginning to understand how important it is. In a lot of relationships, you know, that we have understood previously uh, only in terms of the, of the plant component. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by this, I mean... Fungi are everywhere, yet they're often very hard to discern because they they don't send out the mushroom itself, the fruiting bodies very often, but they are distributed throughout the soil. They are distributed within plants themselves. There are these what they call endophytic fungi that are living within the plant and doing all sorts of, of things chemically that help plants and uh, interact with plants. And so uh, now that we have some genetic techniques that allow us to discern where these fungi are growing and get an idea or be the beginning of an idea of how important they are and what they're doing, we're learning all sorts of things about how important uh, the fungal kingdom is and how much it interacts with uh, with plants, with insects, with others. So nothing would surprise me. That's, that's the short <laughs> answer there. Nothing would surprise me there. And I, I think that's something to definitely track. You're one of the people that I've spoken with who has a vast knowledge of bee species. And so I invented a little game. <laughs> so it's called Celebrity Bee Mashup. Now, I'll name a celebrity and you can tell me which kind of bee you think they are. Oh, that sounds are bad. You, are you game? <laughs> I'm game. Okay, now if you decide that the celebrity is a honeybee worker, you have to designate which job they're doing in the hive. Okay, are you ready? I am ready. All right, celebrity bee mashup number one, Steve Buscemi. Oh my goodness, he's a sweat bee. Active sweat bee. The guy, don't you think? I mean, look at him. Uh, At any rate, the the wonderful, marvelous, active little bees that uh, uh, we have in our own backyards here, but uh, very widely distributed, lots of diversity there, but small and active sweat bee, that's where I'd put him. Okay, brilliant. All right, Uh, number two, Cindy Crawford. Well, I'm going to go with the alkali bee, which is uh, known for its beauty, 
a very lovely looking bee uh, and also a hardworking and very talented bee good for uh, pollinating alfalfa and things but uh, certainly uh, be known for its beauty because of these wonderful uh, opaly uh, stripes that it has on its abdomen where the uh, color of the bee is not from the hair but from the actual cuticle of the bee uh, just inherently pretty uh, producing these wonderful rainbows of color. That is a very high compliment, and isn't the alkali bee also your favorite bee? That is, yeah, <laughs> my favorite bee tends to shift now and then, but okay. uh, it is certainly uh, a bee that is one of my favorites. Okay, all right, uh, number three, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, oh wow. <laughs> You know, I I think that I I'm gonna put Ruth right there at the, at the, you know, as a queen bee, oh, uh, nice. in, in the center of the hive. You know, she's a queen bee. She is uh, inspiring and probably you know emitting all sorts of pheromones that are directing all sorts of activities throughout uh, uh, our society. I'm gonna put put Ruth right on the top. <laughs> okay. All right. And the last one is Jimmy Fallon. Alan. Oh, he's so eager, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. And so earnest. That could be so many different bees. Let me think. <laughs> I'm going to actually put him as a, uh, a bumblebee worker. Uh, you know, he is very uh, he's fuzzy and, and uh, a warm bee. Bumblebees have the ability to keep themselves warm. So he's, he's fuzzy and warm and very active. And he makes you smile. Oh, I love that. Okay, that was so fun. I do want to talk about your bees and Big Mac challenge. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Will you tell the story? Oh, certainly. Well, I, you know, was interested in looking for the signature, if you will, the effects of bees in an unusual meal in that we hear often that every third bite of food in the human diet is, is attributable in some way to bees. And that makes sense if you're walking down the produce aisle in the grocery store or if you're at the farmer's market and you see all these wonderful fruits and nuts and vegetables. Well, you know, that seems logical that bees would be involved in all that. But I wanted to see what the role of bees was in an unusual place, so I went to McDonald's and ordered a Big Mac. I thought, well, here is a place where you really aren't thinking about bees when you're eating your sandwich. And it also happens to be one uh, meal where uh, many of us uh, know the recipe by heart, you know, the two all-beef patties and the special sauce, lettuce, cheese, and so forth. Uh, so I thought, I can do this and figure out what, uh, if any, role bees played in this meal. So I went to McDonald's, ordered a Big Mac, and I had my uh, tweezers and my hand lens, and I had a couple of reference books, and I also, uh, McDonald's was uh, kind enough to provide the full ingredients list for the Big Mac. And I went through, and I made two piles on my tray, and I put on the left the things that one could eat if the you know, there were no bees in the equation, you know, and then I separated out and piled on the right all of the parts of the sandwich that rely upon or benefit from bees in some way. And so in the bee-free pile, of course, I could have the two all-beef patties because the cows can be raised on grass alone, which is a wind-pollinated species, mm -hmm. and also had the bun, uh, which, again, is uh, primarily made from 
uh, you know, bred from grains, from grass and seeds that are wind pollinated. But I had to pluck off all 238 sesame seeds off the pot and put them <laughs> in the other pile because sesame plant, though it does self-pollinate, is clearly by uh, the look of the flower and its relations in the wild uh, descended from a bee-pollinated species. And so then uh, quickly realized that virtually everything else on the sandwich in one way or another relied or benefited relied upon or benefited from bees and that goes of course from the from the pickles to the lettuce which uh, you know relies on bees for the production of seed and new varieties mm. uh, uh, you know all the way down to the special sauce which had several ingredients uh, including annatto as a coloring and including the oils, the vegetable oils that made it creamy, whether canola, which is bee pollinated, or even soybean oil, is uh, uh, benefits tremendously from having bees in the field, ten to forty percent greater yields. So uh, we, I, I quickly realized that you know if we were living in a world without bees, yes, there would still be things to eat, but those things would be uh, pretty dull uh, and probably not very nutritious. And mm-hmm. that all the veggies and flavorings from that sandwich uh, uh, were, were bee-related ingredients in one way or another. And also, the advertising jingle never would have taken off because <laughs> you probably wouldn't have gotten too far with a song that just said, to all beef patties, bun. <laughs> Do you have time to, to keep a garden or to keep bees with all of your, your writing and your research and traveling? Sure. So my wife is a wonderful gardener, and I consider myself a garden enabler. <laughs> I uh, am happy to uh, do uh, the, the splitting of wood and the uh, plumbing projects and other things around the house that will help uh, free up more of her time to to devote to the garden, because she is a wonderful gardener. So we have a, a, a brilliant gardener that is really my wife and, and son's domain. Uh, and I, ha- I have a very small bee garden in front of my office where I, I keep... Uh, uh, plants, particularly for bees, and then while I don't keep honeybees, I do have a variety of bees that I encourage by providing nesting habitat. So, uh, and then also some, some fabulous uh, potter wasps and well. So I have a small bee and wasp garden uh, right in front of my office. Do you ever get really distracted just watching them when you're supposed to be working? Oh yeah, I'm very easily distracted <laughs> by all sorts of things. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, it's uh, not uncommon to see me wander out and start gazing at the uh, gazing at the bees. And in fact, my son and I uh, spotted some honeybee workers just uh, two days ago. So oh, here fabulous. in the middle of winter, even in the middle of winter on a warm day. Yeah, I've been surprised. Um, the last few days, the bees are. The activity at the hive entrances really looks more like spring or summertime. It's been so busy. Yep, I'm not surprised. We don't have the hives here, but uh, somewhere in our neighborhood, uh, they are getting pretty active. And and we even have flowers on on a a broccoli plant that went to seed in the garden, and the bees not only buzzing around, but actually gathering pollen two days ago. Oh, fabulous. Thank you for feeding them. (laughs) (laughs) When you're on tour and you're doing book signings specifically for Buzz, what are some of the questions that people are asking you or feedback that they have about your book? Oh, I always enjoy the question and answer period at a, at a lecture. 
uh, you know, above all else, because it's just such a wonderful exchange, and I get to hear what's on people's minds, and sometimes people ask questions that I, I haven't even thought of. So, um, I, I guess, you know, some of the questions that often come up have to do with, with bee diversity. I mean, people just wanting to get their heads around the wonderful variety of bees that we have in the landscape, because, you know, when we think of bees, naturally enough, our, our minds turn to the bee that we know best, the honeybee, which we've had domesticated now for thousands of years. It's the bee that is closest to us, and its biology is totally fascinating. Uh, so a lot of times I think people read the book or hear about the lecture or, or what have you, and... Uh, are surprised that there's so much diversity in the bee world. So I think that is one theme that often comes out and something that I'm always happy to chat with people about. Mm-hmm. Are other insect families as diverse as bees? Certainly, yes. I, there's a, a you know such a variety of insects in the world. It really is uh, eye-opening to start to look closely and see what's out there in any, in any landscape. So you have a great diversity of things like bees and ants and wasps and, and what have you, mm-hmm. uh, and a marvelous diversity of beetles. There's a, a famous comment uh, from a biologist that, uh, uh, talking about uh, religion in a way and said it doesn't know much about God, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, <laughs> except that God must have had an inordinate fondness for beetles, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> meaning there's such a grand diversity of beetles above all else on this planet, uh, oh, which wow. is uh, a famous comment that uh, is really quite, a, quite uh, a commentary on the diversity of insects that we have. So with pollination being the bee's core function, what's the core function of beetles? Oh, yeah, core function. Well, see, and, and this is an interesting thing, too. What, you know, what, how do we define function in the first place, really? Mm-hmm. I mean, bees play a wonderful role in pollination, but, of course, from the bees' perspective, they're just trying to get a meal, uh-huh. and the pollination is rather incidental to that. So oftentimes these things we think of as functions are, are byproducts of, of other activities. So for beetles, you just have a lifestyle that's particularly effective and particularly uh, successful. And when you develop some style like that, uh, some way of living in nature that is effective and persists for long periods of time, you tend to get great diversity that goes along with that. Mm-hmm. So beetles uh, being a whole variety of lifestyles, but including you know predators and including uh, plant uh, uh, herbivores and, and what have you, being around for a long period of time and having a very successful lifestyle, just diversified to take advantage of all of the different uh, opportunities that are out there, specializing on different sorts of plants and different mm-hmm. parts of plants, uh, specializing on hunting other insects uh, in various ways and various habitats from under the water to high up in the canopy of trees, you know, so just a great diversity taking advantage of the diversity of habitat and life that we have on the planet. So what's next for you? Do you have another book already in the works or are you going to take some time to just play for a while? Oh, no. I Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a new book and, and this is a book about the natural history of climate change. Ooh. So not about the process itself, not about uh, the climatology, but about how plants and animals respond to rapid change in their environment and how we can measure 
adaptation and also evolution really playing out in real time all around us. You know, an aspect of the climate change story that really hasn't, I think, received enough attention. You know, we, we tend to see pictures now and then of a, uh, of a sad-looking polar bear on a melting chunk of ice, and then the, the story moves on, and, and uh, there's not enough attention being placed on uh, how plants and animals are really responding mm -hmm. and what we can learn from that to inform our own response as well. If you want to learn more about Tor or purchase one of his incredible books, visit my blog at waggleworkspdx.com. I'll be including links to his website and more. This podcast is 100% listener-supported, and we have two new patrons this week. Meet Cynthia Holt from one of our recent episodes about beekeeping in Rhode Island and Mike Clem. Thank you so much for your support. And if you want to become a patron, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Mandy Shaw. And if you can't become a patron, that's okay too. By liking, sharing, and subscribing, you help introduce this show to more listeners. You can follow Beekeeper Confidential on Facebook and Instagram, and you can also follow my personal bee adventures on Instagram, and my handle is at beingmandy, and that's being with two E's. If you want more of my voice in your ears, I was a guest on the Basement Pioneers podcast recently to talk about being a beekeeping entrepreneur, and we reveal a couple of major beekeeper bloopers. You can find Basement Pioneers on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Beekeeper Confidential is a Waggle Works production and is written and produced by Mandy Shaw.